Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. Uh, Today, what we're going to look at is Romans 16. And we're finally coming to the end of the book of Romans. How many of you excited? Okay, I don't know why you're excited. If you're excited because you're like, we're finally done. I'm tired of Romans. Or you're like, oh, I'm so excited to look at what conclusion Paul brings us at the end of Romans. So turn your Bibles to Romans 16 if you haven't already. We're going to cover this last topic called living victoriously. And as we're coming to the ends of Romans today, uh, Paul finishes with this conclusion. It's a very interesting conclusion. I don't know. Um, I mean, if, you're, if you uh, want to be honest, how many of us we skip over all the list of names usually when we read the Bible, okay? I don't know about you, but that's me, right? Like any long genealogy, right? The father of this person, the father of that person, and then this person. And um, I was like trying to listen to how you actually say the names of these people. I was like, man, these names are hard to pronounce and let alone read and understand, like, why are they even in here? It's just the ending. It's kind of like the end credit scene of a movie. So let's just try to skip over it. But I would say, if you really look into it, there's a lot more to the list of names and the end exhortation that Paul gives than meets the eye. And if we just skip over it like it's not important, then we're missing out on the very culmination of God's word and what Paul is trying to communicate to the church in Rome and and therefore to us. And uh, my my question to you just to think about as we start this morning is, how would you end a letter or an essay so that you could communicate your heart or the central or the main message of what you wanted to communicate through the whole letter or through that whole essay? I mean, students, I don't know how many of you are writing papers right now. Like in, in school, what do they teach you? Introduction, thesis statement, body supporting paragraphs, and then a conclusion where you reiterate your thesis and you conclude and you, you just summarize what you shared. Does that make sense? Or, you know, they never taught you that. Like, oh, that's why I'm getting such poor grades on my papers. <clears throat> that, that's how, you know, the modern world tells us to communicate. And it makes sense. And there's a lot of good things about that. But Paul doesn't do that. The way Paul outlines his letters, he shares with us the general format of what we call an epistle or a letter. Starts with an introduction, a greeting. He goes through a prayer or an encouragement for the people he's writing to. He has a long section on the content, which is the, the main section of the letter. And he closes out with some greetings and then what we call a doxology, which is a, a glory to God, something to praise God with. And, and this is how typical letters in the, in the ancient Greek world of that time were written. This is very, very normal. But it's very different than how we typically write things. It's different than how we expect things to happen. But I would propose to you, it's actually not that much different to how we tell stories and how we summarize the stories that we tell. Anyone like movies? Anyone like the movie Avengers? Okay, Endgame. Hopefully you've, you've watched it by now. Uh, if you haven't watched it by now, I'm not going to give any spoilers, but you're, you're way out of date. You know, I think that was several years ago. There's many newer uh, Marvel movies out right now that I'm sure many of you are wanting to watch. What, what, hap- what is the main, one of the main themes or central messages of the movie? Teamwork. That, that we're better together, right? Like, the, not, not in that way, okay? But 
You know, one of the main themes of the of the movie in the in the end of the end game, right? You see like, you know, the couple people who are still left somehow are getting this battle with the big titan and then they're like struggling, they're about to die and then what happens right about the time that they're about to get killed? Then their whole team shows up and then they win the battle and they win and they conquer everything. So that's one of the main themes of the movie. And the the movie ends and it shows them what? The the whole process of them coming back together. And then like living out the end of their days together and you know growing old together, all that. And what happens at the very, very end of the movie? I mean, yeah, people die and stuff like that. The end of the story. I'm not just talking about the end of the story, but I'm talking about the end of the movie. The end credits. Sneaky, yes. Is the end credits. And after the, the, the black screen goes down and then pops up the music and the names. And this is the part that we all hate, right? We're like, oh my God, I have to sit through. And you know what movie uh, directors do now? They put a post-credit teaser so that you'll sit through all the list of names that go through there so that what? You'll actually sit there and watch so that you can see the post-credit scene. Now, why do they do that? And, and I know most of us, when we watch movies, we're like, oh, okay, we just got to get through the credits. And the credits don't really mean much. You're like, all the, okay, sure, you may see like the popular actors that you like, but everyone else is like not a big deal. Like, who are all these extras and who are these lights people and the sound, you know, it's like, yeah, okay, you know, I've never heard of them. So you just kind of skip over it. But I will say, if you are part of that team that made the movie, if you're one of those team members, if you're one of those lights people, if you're one of those sound people, if you're the people that, edited like one frame that lasted like 10 seconds of the whole movie. Anyone here in film? I know, you know, someone in my life who's in film. <clears throat> but their name quite isn't quite there yet in the credit scene. <laughs> Hopefully soon to be. But if you're in the film and you know how big of a deal it is to have your names in the end credit scene. And, and when your whole team, the whole movie, creation team is watching it together and you see that there's a, there's a different sense. And I, and I use that movie Avengers, why? Because the whole theme of the movie is what? About coming together, working as a team to conquer evil and the enemy. But what do the end credits scene really demonstrate? It's, it's, a, it's a testimony, real life testimony to this made up story of Avengers and Marvel, a real life testimony of people coming together and what? coming together to create a story, to deliver a message, to work together for something greater. And it's powerful, why? Because, I mean, Avengers is one of the highest grossing movies in all of history, worldwide, not, in, not only in Hong Kong and the US, but worldwide. Millions and almost billions of people have watched that movie. And for this group of people to come together to do and accomplish that is incredibly powerful. And that's the way that I want us to think about this last section that Paul writes about. Because everything, we, we've talked for uh, several, like seven to eight months on Romans, from Romans 1 all the way through Romans 15. Now we come to Romans 16 and he gives this list of names and this ending passage. And he's saying, everything that you've just seen, this whole story, this whole essay, this whole theological dis dissertation that I've written, everything culminates now in the lives of the people that I mention, in the relationships that we have, and the exhortation that I now give you at the end. And if we could just see that, you'll see a powerful living example 
of everything that we've covered for the last eight months. That's my prayer that we would see that. For the gospel to come alive, for the message of Romans to come alive, you have to see this at the end of Romans 16. So I'm not going to have a one thing for this morning, but I'm going to just have two questions. You're going to remember two things, okay? Instead of one thing, two things. Two questions for you to remember. The first is, who are your partners? And the second is, what is your purpose? Who are your partners, and what is your purpose? And, and we're going to look into who are your partners first, and please, don't think about your romantic partner right now, all right? That's going to come. We'll talk about that in a relationship seminar in, this, in the future. But who are your partners in the gospel, in the faith, in the ministry, and in this church? Hopefully, you've turned to Romans 16 by now. We're going to look at the first 23 verses, and hopefully, I'll be able to pronounce all these names. Pray for your pastor. All right. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centronia, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need for you, for she has been a patron of many, of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church and their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who is the first convert in Christ in, in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles. They were in Christ before me. <clears throat> Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trephenia and Tryphosa. Greet my beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philagulus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All of the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to do what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So did Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is a host to me and the whole church, greet you, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus, greet you. Amen. All right. That was a mouthful. Next time you try reading it. Who are your partners? Paul lists out 26 different people in this passage. Some 24 by name, others by indirect relationship. And the question that we're thinking about now is, as we talk about this last part, now we're, we're, Paul is painting a picture of the church because the church is made up of not a building but a people. We always talk about that. Every Sunday, the church is not a building, it's a people. And he's not talking about what does the church look like? What is the glorious victorious church look like? And if we look at some of these names, you begin to see some patterns. 
And so whenever, yeah, whenever you study, whenever you look at genealogies and list of names, look carefully. There's so much more than meets the eye. There's a couple characteristics that we see when we look at the partners of Paul. The first is that they were hardworking yet beloved. They were hardworking and yet beloved. I'm not going to read the names again, but here are the partners and fellow workers. And just list them out there. Phoebe, Prisca, and Aquila. One thing that you'll notice is that they're all workers. They're all described as either fellow workers or that they worked hard or that they were in prison together with Paul. And that's really, really interesting because that, that's something that we don't typically think of when we talk about the gospel and grace. We're like, oh, you don't have to do anything. You just sit there and receive, you believe. But if anything, Paul is saying, no, the, the Christians that are working together with me, they work hard, they work diligently, they were partners with me, they went through so much suffering together. And then he contrasted on the other side, but yet they're also beloved, chosen, appointed. Now he gives some examples, Abenetus, Ampliatus, Stechis, Apelles, Rufus. Right? They're my beloved, my beloved, my beloved. And he doesn't say anything about them other than they're my beloved. I don't know if you, like, can you imagine like someone writing a letter and listing out your name? My beloved. Nothing else. No other credit to your name. They're just my beloved. You're like, oh, okay. I mean, I guess I'm love, but, you know, I would like some other. I, can I be a hard worker? Can I be like someone who is pretty awesome? No, it's just my beloved. And Paul is affirming and reinforcing for us that it's not just about what we do, but who we are, who we are in Christ and how God has loved us first. And, and we constantly find this tension in Scripture between working hard, being diligent, being passionate, being committed, living our lives fully, all in for the gospel, and yet being dearly loved and cared for and cherished every single day. I, I wanted to give us a little bit of con context for this. One of the people in particular, they mentioned Prisca and Aquila, they also named uh, Priscilla and Aquila. I, I wanted to give you some context because Paul, in the book of Acts, also interacted with them. This is how their relationship developed. In Acts 18, verse 2 to 3, verse 18, and also 18 to 19, this is what it says. So there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. So here are two Jews. They were living in Rome. Claudius is the emperor, and he says, all the Jews must leave Rome. So who were Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila? They were refugees. They were refugees, kicked out of their homes, sent out to somewhere else, and had to fend for themselves, make a living. And many of us, we've heard of stories of refugees today in modern day, and how difficult and how much need there is. And how hard it must have been during that season of their lives. And what does it say in verse 3? Because he was a tent maker as they were, Paul also being a tent maker, we're like, what is a tent maker? Did they just make tents for a living? I mean, yes, they made tents. That's why it's called a tent maker. They did. But being a tent maker in those times meant that their day job was making tents, but their, their real job was sharing the gospel. They had two jobs. I mean, working adults, can you imagine having two jobs in, in Hong Kong? I mean, your one job already feels like two jobs, right? You, you work, your first job is like 9 to 5, your second job is 6 to 11, you know? But it's for the same employer, it's the same boss. <laughs> You're like, why am I working two jobs? This is what they did, and they, they didn't do it forcefully, they did it by choice. 
Priscilla and Aquila, they did it by choice. And you're like, Paul, yeah, that's just Paul, you know? He had this, like, crazy conversion story on the road to Damascus. And of course, that, of course Paul would do that, right? And oftentimes, that's how you see pastors. Like, of course pastors do that. Of course they, you know, labor and all this because they're pastors. But then when you hear someone else who's not a pastor, not a leader, say the same thing, you're like, whoa, powerful. So to see Priscilla and Aquila, they're, they're, they're not Paul, they're not apostles, but they're laying their lives down. For the gospel, working two jobs. And it continues on. Verse 18, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters, sailed for Syria, accompanied by who? Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Chantaria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So not only did they go to Corinth because they're kicked out of Rome, but they said, our lives are for the gospel. So what? Paul, we're going to go with you. We're going to go with you and not only go with you, but wherever you want to send us, we're, we're going to go that. So he, he does what? He leaves them in Ephesus because Paul had spent three years in Ephesus building up the church. He said, I want you to build up the church in Ephesus. And I want you to lay your lives down for this church. For this people you didn't know because you were in Rome. But now you're going to this new city where you have no clue, no relationship. I want you to lay your roots down there and build up the church there. I, I want to ask you for a second, how many of us, we're willing to pick up anything, work two jobs, go to a city that you don't know anyone and build up the church? But that's the type of worker and fellow partners that Paul honored and he spoke about. And it wasn't just Priscilla and Aquila. He mentions all those other people, Mary and these other women in the gospel, and one thing, it, one thing is, it's, it's really interesting. Paul says they worked hard. But how many of us, we know Paul worked hard. 1 Thessalonians 2.9 says, For you remember, brothers, our what? Labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. How many of us, we labor and toil all night for video games? How many of us, we labor and toil all night for... Uh, you know, what's it called? Netflix binging, right? Season after season after season. And some of us, we labor and toil all night because of a project or it's final season right now or because your boss has a deadline the next day. Like we labor and toil for all these things. But the question is how many of us, we, we know how hard it is to labor and toil for those things. But how many of us, we know how hard it is to labor and toil for the gospel, for people that you don't even know, that don't appreciate you, that don't care for you back, that don't give you anything in return. That's Paul. Paul knows how hard it is to work hard and to labor and toil. And Paul is now saying these people worked hard and labored and toiled. And my, my challenge for us, how many of us, we have that kind of work ethic. We have that kind of heart. And it doesn't come out of people-pleasing. It doesn't come out of, I need to do this so that I can get my grade or I can get my promotion or I could do this thing for myself. But it comes out because I know I am beloved. I am cherished. I am cared for. I am adored by God. He has given his whole life for me. If there was anyone that worked hard, that gave his life, it was Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is why I do everything that I do. Are we that kind of people? First, oh, sorry, 2 Thessalonians 2.13 
says, but we ought to always give thanks to you, God, thanks to God for you, beloved uh, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, belief and truth. Nothing that they did, the Thessalonians, but God is saying, you are the beloved, my beloved, beloved by the Lord. Nothing that you did. It wasn't your own work. But, and then 1 Corinthians 5, 58, he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, he's also writing, the, my beloved, those who are loved and cherished by God, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in what? The work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, you're what? Your labor. Let's say it again. You're what? Labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. And, and this is the, the tension for us because so many of us, we, we, we go to opposite extremes. On one extreme, we're like, we are saved by grace. We don't have to do anything. I just sit there and I receive. And my role as a Christian is just to be, which is part of it. But there's this thing called antinomianism, which is a big word. If you want to look it up, it means I think that grace is just for me and I don't do anything in response. And that is sin. That is not what Paul is talking about. He's saying the love that God has given you is for a purpose. It's not for you just to sit there and receive and consume and just be while everyone else does things for you. It's not so that you can sin and do whatever you want because you're free in Christ. It's there so you can actually love and serve other people. And well, you're like, okay, Pastor, well, I'm not like that. But I'm on the other side. You're on the other side. You're the legalist side. You're like, oh, I got to do all these things in order to what? Be a good Christian. I got I to gotta pray enough. I got to read. I, gotta, I came to church every Sunday this, this year. Even though we were online, I made it in person. I served on the ministry. I was here every single week. Look at my badge of honor. <clears throat> Some of us, we were like, oh, I, I did my Bible study. I, I prayed my prayers. I went to life. I was part of Salt Community. Look at me. How awesome I am. And you're, you're just on the opposite extreme, but it's the same issue. That somehow you are tying your works to your sense of worth. And it is not because you have internalized the love of Christ that you do what you do. It is because of all these other things. You're looking for approval. You're looking for your sense of worth. You're looking for affirmation. You're looking for control. You're looking for power. You're looking for all these other things outside of the love of Jesus Christ. And that's not what Paul's talking about. But Paul, what he's saying is, if you understand the love of Christ, my beloved, you will know that the hard work that you joyously do is not in vain. You will love to labor alongside others. I want to give this quote from Alexander Whitaker. He he wrote a whole <clears throat> series of works called Paul the Paul's Theology of Work. And I wish, you know, City Ministry, we're going to have to do that in the future, do a whole other theology of work because many of you were not here when we did it several years ago. <clears throat> but we don't have time for that today. But what he writes, he says, failure to work, sloth, represent, oh, that, that makes it different, right? Failure to work. When you're lazy, when procrastinating, what is it? Sloth. And we're like, oh, shoot, seven deadly sins represents faithlessness toward God and our neighbor. There is no rank among Christians in the workplace as there is dignity and equality between all who labor 
and no task for the kingdom that is of lesser importance than any other. As Christians, our work is to sustain and support others and to relieve their burdens as Paul's work did, as we work for Christ's kingdom. Hard work is the norm for the Christian. Let me repeat that again. Hard work is the norm for the Christian. Students, keep that in mind. Those of you who procrastinate all the time. Hard work is the norm for the Christian. <clears throat> we just need to end the sermon right here and go and repent, right? <clears throat> Hard work is the norm for the Christian. <clears throat> and if any of us think that Christian life is easy, man, I, I, I pray that you would internalize this. Hard work is the norm for the Christian as it was for Paul, whether manual labor or otherwise, as it is a witness to others for our faith. To be that witness, our work should follow the self-giving example of Christ, focus on him and on others and not ourselves, marked by what? Agape love. It is because we are loved and because we love others that we work hard. And our hard work, what? It is a witness to others. It is a partnership with other believers where we share the love of Christ with so many other people. That's why we will do what we do. And as we look at the example of Priscilla and Aquila and Paul and all these people that Paul referenced to, the question goes back to, who are your partners? Do you have people like this in your life? Do you people have, who have ethics that are hardworking, that support you, that challenge you, that don't just say like, oh, I, I'm too, oh man, I'm, I'm too busy and I got so many other things. I got video games to play. I got Netflix to watch. And I don't know if I could help you in this ministry aspect. Do you have people who are willing to challenge you? Do you have people who set a lifestyle, an example, that instead of procrastinating together, I don't know about your life group study hangouts. <clears throat> hey, let's study together, guys. It becomes a chit-chat session the whole time for a couple hours. <laughs> oh my God, I got to study my exams tomorrow. Oh no. I know that I've been there. I am also guilty. But do you have people like that? We're saying, let's work hard for, let's study for Christ, not for our grade, not for our parents, but for Christ. And those of you who are in the workplace, do you work hard or do you take advantage? You're like, Lord, thank you, Jesus, for the fifth wave and for my flexibility in my company because they, they're letting me work from home, you know, most of the week now. Man, I only have to go in like, how many, do you, you have to go in three, four days a week? I only have to go in one day a week. Oh man, and it's so nice because Five hours a day, I don't do anything. Three hours a day, I get most of my work done. And I just chill. And my boss has no idea because, you know, they don't really keep track of my deadlines. Is that the witness that you want to have at work? You just do the bare, you, you over, under promise, you over deliver. Hey, it looks great, right? Everyone thinks I'm doing a good job. Does your ethic translate into integrity at your workplace? That the way that you work represents Christ. And you have other people in the church, in your life group, in the city ministry who are saying, hey brother, hey sister, like, hey, does the way that you work actually reflect Christ and the love that Christ has poured into you? I feel like we need more examples of that in our church. I know that we're a younger church. Most of us that are working are in our mid to late 20s. We have a batch now that's getting into our 30s. Praise the Lord. I am not alone anymore. Eric and I are rejoicing. And I know many of us are, you know, all different age groups, and some of us are 
you know, a little bit more uh, experienced. And, and we're looking at the rest of us who are younger, like, yeah, they just don't even know how hard it's going to get. And I, to those of you who are in that stage, I would say I'm challenging you to be those partners for those who are coming into the workplace, for those who are graduating, for those who are just a couple years into your working life. Like, show us. Exemplify it for us. Share with us. Demonstrate it. Admonish us. Exhort us together as partners in the gospel in the workplace because what we spend so much time at work. Why should your life not be an example in the workplace as a hard worker for Christ Jesus? Just as it is in every other aspect of your life. Do we, do we sharpen one another that way? And students, this is not just for the city. You're going to be working soon too. Those of you who are doing interns in the summer, what kind of intern are you going to be? I hope it's not one of those interns that all the working people are like, oh, I don't want to give that person work. Man, working people, you know what that is like. Who are your partners? Are they fellow workers who are yet beloved? And the second thing, the subpoint, is that are your partners diverse but yet united? Do you have a diversity of people, but are they yet united together? Paul, like I mentioned, he names 26 different people. And they're all, everything from rich and poor, they're, they're Jews or they're Gentiles, they're men and they're women. And it, it is like the United Nations in Paul's age and time. I'll, I'll just list out some of those, those rich people. You're like, these are the people I want to get to know. Phoebe, she was called a patron. In those days, the system of patronage was very widespread all throughout the Greek-speaking and the Roman world. A patronage system was simply where there was someone who was very wealthy and rich, and, and you would essentially be supporting them with your, your skills and your labors, and they would support you through their finances. And so Phoebe was considered, and it was quite rare for women to be considered a patron in those times. But she was a rich person, another person, Aristobulus. Uh, many commentators note that he was the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, who's king, right? So if you're grandson of the king, you're pretty rich. Another person, Herodian, and then also narcissists. Well, of course, narcissist is rich because he's narcissist. No, <laughs> it was narcissist was just a Greek uh, name at the time. All right, a Greek and Roman name at the time. But but he was, according to commentators, a person who advised and influenced the emperor of Rome, Claudius. So if you're the advisor to the emperor, you got to have some connections there, and you got to be wealthy. Paul lists all these people as part of his what partners. We also had the poor there. Uh, I'm not going to list the names. They're going to be right there. Some of the poor, Ampliatus, uh, you know, Hermit. These were names that were common for slaves in that time. Common for slaves. Slaves in that time who had no rights. They, they literally sold their lives. They were bond servants. They were, you know, literally for a time or until they could pay themselves off, that they were someone else's property. They were slightly different than our modern term understanding of slaves, but still nonetheless very low in the socioeconomic ladder. They had Jews. Paul had Jews in his list, five of them. We already named some of them, Prisca and Aquila, Adronicus, Junia, Herodian. His kinsmen, he's always mentioning, my kinsmen, and it's not literally his family members, but my kinsmen in the sense of we're all Jews together. But the majority of people that he mentions, not just the five, but the other who are the 21, are all Gentiles. They're all people who are not his people. 
There are people who don't share his ethnic group, don't share his upbringing, don't share his background. And I'm not going to write out all of them, but it's literally everyone else that he lists out. We're Gentile because a Gentile is simply a non-Jew. And then also he mentions women. Nine women out of 26. The whole list is there. Phoebe, Priscilla, you know, Mary, Junia, Trimini, you know. And many of these were listed as what? Hard workers. The, the Rufus's mother, who was like a mother to me too. And then, you know, men. It doesn't Who cares about the men? Right, women? Right? Amen? It's, it's the women that come first. It's the women that are important. The men, 15 other men, everyone else. My question is, how many of you have such a diversity in your partnerships in the gospel? Or how many of us, it's so easy to just gravitate to the people who are like you, who tell you what you want to hear, who are part of the same ethnic group, who are part of the same social economic standpoint, who are part of the same age group, who are part of the same uh, industry, who are part of the same whatever you want to call it. I got my bouldering group. I got my <laughs> exercising group. Sorry, I got to, you know. There's nothing wrong with bouldering, all right, okay? I got my League of Legends group. And then, you know, the family's like, okay, everyone who has children, we can get along together because there's so few of us here, right? But it's so easy to stay within the confines of people who are like us. Why? Because it's just more comfortable. It's easier. You don't have to deal with the, the, the discomforts of interacting with someone who's so different from you. But that's the point of the gospel. We're going to do a sermon on Ephesians 2, but God literally breaks down the walls of hostility. Do I have that verse in here? I, no, I don't. Okay. He breaks down the walls of hostility so what? We could be a united church together. And so that through the diversity... And the multi-ethnicity and the multi-socioeconomic background that we have, we can represent Christ in his church. How many of us, we love to speak our own language with the people that speak our own language, hang out together to do the own things that we love to do with our, those same people. And I'm not saying you cannot have friends that are part of your same ethnic group. Please do not misunderstand me. But what am I, I am saying is what are you aspiring for? What are you putting yourself out there for? We have this value in our church called transculturalism. It literally means going across cultures. And culture does not only mean ethnic cultures. It means socioeconomic cultures. It means age different groups. Because you understand, like, the, the culture that is in within our undergrad ministry is very different than the culture within our married couples ministry. And undergrads are like, oh, what is that? What is covenant? What is building blocks? What is this youth group? I thought our church was all college students. I hope, you, I hope none of us think that. But it's going across cultures to put ourselves intentionally in discomfort, discomfortable positions, uncomfortable positions. So what? We can experience the gospel together. And that's what Paul talks about. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. To see this united connection together into the Corinthian church. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no what? Divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
Like, there's so many other verses in Corinthians that talks about division and unity. Like, the whole book is about division and unity. Unity was so important to Paul that we are not to be divided by groups or cliques or anything else, that we are united together for a common purpose and for a common goal. And why? Because that's what the, the church is going to look like in Revelation. Revelation 7, verse 9, it says, After this I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages. If that's what church is going to look like, if that's what heaven is going to look like, why don't we start living it now? Because if, if you don't like that here on earth, why would you like that in heaven? If, if you're so comfortable within your own group, you don't want to interact with, you're going to be forced to do that for eternity, for the rest of your lives, interacting with people different than you. And that's why we aspire to have a transcultural church where there's diversity and we see each other as partners in the gospel. My question is, do you have a diversity and unity of your partnerships in your life? Do you have partners like that? And are you a partner like that to other people? Are you proactively finding people who are different than you, partnering with them, supporting them, encouraging them, strengthening them? List, just in your mind for right now, list the people that are the five closest people to you within Hong Kong Con. I know that we all have friends, you know, many of us, we have friends abroad. I'm talking about in Hong Kong, who are the five closest people to you? Are they all like you? Are they all from the same background, the same university, the same socioeconomic background as you? Or are they a little bit different? If they're different, praise the Lord. I think you're really living it out, and I feel like you need to show us, exemplify it. Help us to develop that. But for those of us, our closest five are all like us. This is a challenge, not for, only for you, but for myself. What are we doing to diversify, yet in unity, together, to partner for the gospel for something greater. Paul gives warnings. So we talk, Paul, Paul is saying, who are your partners? They ought to be fellow workers who work hard yet beloved. They ought to be diverse yet unified. And he says, warning, there are two things I want to warn you about. Is that there are going to be insiders and there are going to be selfish people who come against you. I don't need to read it again, but remember in verse 17, there, he's saying, watch out for people who cause divisions. And he's not referring to outside people saying, within the church, people among you, watch out for them. And then he says, also those people who are what? Self-indulgence, people who are being selfish, watching out for themselves. Those are the people you got to watch out for. Why does Paul give this stark warning right after he lists the whole people that he's partnering with? It's because Paul, he knows, it's not a this is not a theological explanation of grace and works. This is not a theological exposition of diversity and yet unity in the church. If you want that, go to Ephesians 2. If you want the work and stuff, go to Philippians. But what Paul is saying is who the people you surround yourself with will represent the message that you embody in your life and that you want to aspire for. And be, be warned that there are going to be people around you who are not going to be on the same page for the same purpose. They're going to be watching out for themselves. And you need to focus on who are the people around you. Who are the people that you're partnering together with? Who are the people that are connected with you? And, and why is that so important? And I was, 
I was, uh, I was just going through something yesterday. Uh, we, we had a couple people over. We had uh, time to like, do, do the dishes, and you know, I had to prep for my sermon. And I just got to a point where I was just like, I don't, I don't want to prepare the sermon anymore. And I was just like, man, am I burnt out, or am I like, just tired, or like, what's going on? Because I really, really do not want to prepare the sermon right now. And I'm like, well, if I don't prepare the sermon, who's going to? The Lang brothers? Want a tag team? <laughs> and and I'm, I was just sitting there, and I was like trying to prepare the sermon. I was thinking like, initially, because I was like, oh, maybe this is about works versus grace. Maybe this is about diversity and unity. Maybe this is a, I, I just had to pull out, you know, the different people who are listed and show how they're working hard in this grace and, and, and then, you know, use some other cross-references to show how, you know, works and grace is really connected together, and it's all one and the same, and we have to grow deeper in our understanding of the gospel. And then as I was just taking a walk, because I wasn't doing well, and, you know, whenever Erica knows I'm not doing well, she's like, go take a walk. It's like, this is like the thing that I need to do. And I was just taking a walk, and as I was just praying, I think just God just smacked me over the head, and he was like, this is not about a theological, this is not about just knowing more, understanding more. This is about who are the people around you. And I had to ask myself, who are the people around me? Because I was like, man, I'm, I'm tired. I'm not motivated. I feel burnt out. I feel just like, like, what's the point of continuing on if, if I don't see the things that I want to see? And, you know, I'm going through all these different dark thoughts and struggles. And God was like, who are the people around you? Who are the people that you've surrounded yourself with? And I started thinking about, who are the people around me? And I started thinking about the the people that I serve with for life group, the leaders that I serve with together, I was like, wow, I'm, I'm so thankful for them because they've worked hard. They've literally given their lives. They risked, you know, I, I didn't mention it, but Priscilla and Aquila, it says they risked their necks. It's literally in the Greek. It literally says risk their necks. I thought it was an English idiom, but it's actually Greek. I'm like, man, these, these leaders, these partners have literally died. We've, we've died together. We've been late night through discussions. We've served together. We've gotten each other's backs. I started thinking, well, who else? Like, oh, actually, the people that I've served together with salt. We've died together. We've, we've done all these things together, late nights and planning things, you know, last minute, which was our own fault. We were like, oh, man, we did this to ourselves. But we still died together. And I was thinking, like, oh, it's also my LCGs. We were, like, challenging each other week after week. I was thinking about my life group. There are so many things we did together that could not have been done by just the leaders or just a smaller group of people. And then I was thinking, like, you know what? It's actually our church. And then God reminded me, like, how I, like, I was watching the end of your video a couple weeks ago, and I was like, ah, you know, I was like, ah. I was like, this is not what I planned. And I realized the reason why I felt that way is because I felt something about all of us going through this year, and it was hard. But through it all, what do I happen? We partnered together. We labored together. We're all different. All different age groups. All different socioeconomic backgrounds. But we're partnering and laboring together for the gospel. And what we've been able to see, a crazy year of God's blessings and provisions. Amen? Amen to that. And God just slapped me over the head and, and, and said, hey, no matter what frustration, no matter what challenges, no matter what difficulties you go through, no matter what God is calling to you in the future, you look around and who are the people around you? The church is around you. And are you seeing the people in your church as fellow partners, fellow workers 
in the gospel for your encouragement. And I want to challenge all of us, no matter what you're going through, I know this is a final season for students. I know it's hard. Who are the partners around you that you're leaning on to support you in that time? I mean, I was talking with someone about auditing. Like, audit season is every season. There's no non-season, off-season for auditing. Teaching, finance background, logistics. You know, you're, you might be in tech. You might be insurance. I mean, I, I feel like for many of those industries, you're, it's always on, right? You're never off. You're, it's always like you, next week you could be OT and you just have no idea what it's going to be like. Who are the people around you? Who are your partners that are co-laboring, strengthening you, reminding you that you're beloved, to work hard, to be diverse yet united, and to be there together? My prayer is that this is something that we can experience together, that we can partner together for the gospel, for something greater, as Paul so beautifully illustrates through this list of people that he describes. The last thing I want to share with you is not only who are your partners in the gospel, but what is your purpose? And thankfully, we only have three verses left. In all of Romans, let's read it together. Verses 25 to 27, what is your purpose? Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. What is your purpose? What is the whole point of Paul writing this whole letter? Part of it is the partnership that we need to see because those people that you partner with that are your fellow co-laborers co and workers reveal everything about the first 15 chapters of Romans in the community that you live, out, live it out. But Paul says this ending is now the perfect culmination. It is the doxology. It is the glory to God, but it is the culmination of everything that Paul has been preaching for the first 15 chapters. What does it say? If I were to summarize it, he says, now to him who is able to strengthen you, so now to him, that, that signals as a doxology, a glory to God, a, a phrasing or a benediction, a blessing to put the focus back on God. He says there's all the other stuff in verse 25, 26, and then he says, now to him, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore. So now to God, to be glory forevermore. So you could just end it there and say, okay, God to all, to all God be the glory, right? Like many of us who grew up in churches, you, you end a church service like that, or you end like, uh, you know, to, to God, to, to God be all the glory. But Paul, he inserts something in the middle that I think is really important for us to look at. What does he say? He says, to him who is able to what? Strengthen you. And he goes on to explain how that happens. How does it happen? He says, according to my gospel that I preached, disclosed through the prophetic writings, which is scripture, made known to all nations. So that's how. And then why? He says, why? Because God's command and because of to bring about obedience to the faith. Now, all of us, you know, we're thinking, okay, Paul, that's just a bunch of mumbo jumbo Christian language. We're like, okay, you know, I should maybe just incorporate this in my prayer. Of all the prophetic writings to all nations, to God be all the glory, to bring about obedience to faith. I'm like, okay, that's the answer. It's always the answer. We're, we're always called to uphold scripture, to preach the gospel, 
to make disciples of all nations. We've heard that a million times. And that's always the answer. That's always the culmination. That's always the purpose of what Paul is trying to encourage us toward. But that's the answer. Now the question is, what is the question? I mean, side note, I don't know why this popped in my mind, but anyone read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Okay, what is the answer to life, to the universe, and to everything? 42, okay, the, all y'all are nerds, all right, okay? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I can say that because I myself, because I read the book and I read the whole series, all right? Um, those of you who don't get it, <laughs> there's a book called Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and the, like throughout the whole series, there's this concept where the answer to the life, to the universe, and everything is 42, but the question is, what is the question? No one knows what the question is. And that's like what Paul is doing here. He's giving us the answer, but I want to pull back and say, what is the question? What has Paul been weaving through the first 15 chapters in all of Rome, Romans to get us to this point at the end of Romans 16 to say, this is the answer. This is why. This is, this is everything that you should be focusing on. I want to take us through a little bit of a journey through the first 15 chapters. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but I want you to look for each of the sermon ads that we had, for each of the subsections. You remember, we, we talked about the symbol gospel. And the question is, why did Paul tell us all about sin? In the beginning, when we talked about this whole sermon series called Scandalous, it was all through Romans 1 to 3. He was saying, you're sinful. You're, you're trying to be God. You're, you're, you're trying to judge others. You're trying to be righteous on your own. You're, 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 you're trying to do all these things, but no one is righteous. All are alike under sin. Why did Paul tell you about those things? Why? Because he said, it is the gospel through which you are going to be saved, through faith. Why did Paul tell us about faith? We went through the sermon series called Giveaway, where it was all about righteousness now free, free for you. You're freely made right. You're freely given access to Jesus Christ through this relation, through, to God the Father, through Jesus Christ. Why did Paul tell us about freedom? We went through this series called Free at Last, all through Romans 5 through 8, talking about now that we have righteousness through faith, what does that mean? We are free now to live a new life, to live in new freedom, to have a new obedience, to have new hope. Why did Paul talk about predestination? Romans 9 to 11, you're like, oh my God, that was the worst part of the Bible study in life group. It was so hard and I didn't understand a single thing that Paul was saying. We talked about those controversial issues, predestination, about how things that seemed unfair. Like, why did Paul choose some people over others? Why didn't, why didn't God uh, choose the Jews? Why did he have to go through this thing with the Gentiles? Why, did, why is it uh, free will, but yet it's God's grace and grace and his choosing alone? It doesn't make sense. Why did he share that with us? And then lastly, why did he share with us about this new life or these new relationships that we had? Romans 12 to 15, that's why we talked about revolutionaries how our lives are completely made anew. And we live differently, purposefully, compassionately, responsibly, and victoriously. And I wanted to share those because I wanted it to jog our memories. For those of us who are joining us in the last couple of weeks, you know, go listen to the sermons online. They're all there. It might take you a couple of days, but they're there. And we've just gone through Romans. And, and I wanted, for those of us who we've been here this past year, I wanted that to start jogging some of your memory, thinking back through some of the things that God is speaking to you since October, since we started this whole series on Romans. Maybe God is triggering something about, man, I, I, I was sinful, I was broken, but yet God gave something freely to me through faith. I didn't deserve it. 
And, and through faith, this, this thing has given me new life, new hope, uh, a new desire to obey. And, and because of that, now, now these controversial issues, these tensions that I feel about God's grace and yet his provision, yet my free will, are, are now being expressed in urgency to share the gospel to the nations. And now, as we understand all of this about the gospel, now it changes about who I live and how I should interact with other people in the church and in the relationships I have all around me. And he's saying, the answer to all those questions, why does he talk about all those things, is because what? Because we go back to verse 25 to 27, Romans 16, that the gospel needs to be preached because of scripture that has been written so that it can be made known to all nations and that people can be obedient and brought to faith. That's the purpose. That's why we're here. That's why we exist. That's why we live. That's the whole, everything about Romans. That's why we went through all of this. Because Paul's heart is saying, our purpose as Christians is to know the gospel, to bring up, to disciple people so they can have faith, that they can obey Jesus Christ, so that we can share it with as many people to all nations. That's, that's the whole point. If we're living up for anything else, then we're missing the point of the whole book of Romans. And I thought this was so cool. Sorry, this is like my Bible nerd coming out. You look at Romans 1, 1 to 5. It parallels almost everything that Paul talks about in these last three verses. I'll, I'll put it up there. I, I don't need to read it, but if you look at the yellow highlights, you'll notice some of the themes. Gospel, prophet in the Holy Scriptures, obedience of faith among all nations, and Romans 16, which is the passage we just read. Same thing, gospel, prophetic writings, which is Scripture, all nations, and obedience of faith. I don't know, I, just that fact, that, that for me is so, I don't know, you guys are like, man, Pastor Will, you're so nerdy, Bible nerd. Paul starts and ends. Anything you start and you end with, that's, that's, that's important. That's the main thing. That's your their thesis statement in the beginning and your conclusion, your summary at the end. You repeat it. Paul is saying, this is what it's all about. It's about the gospel coming from Scripture so that people can experience faith and obedience to God so that all nations could come to know him. And if you extrapolate that, Romans 1, 16 to 17, this is the actual thesis statement of Romans. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. So that's faith. For to the Jew first and also to the Greek, that's what all nations for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteousness shall live by faith. And one more, let me give you this is a bonus. Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, which is faith, right? You have to have faith in order to be baptized. Them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, right? To obey now the, all that I've commanded you, and behold... I am with you to the very end of the age. That's the gospel. If you're not convinced now, I don't know how much more scripture I have to pull out to show you that everything, our Christian purpose, the whole purpose of Romans is so that we will understand the gospel in a deeper way so that we will have faith and call others to faith so that they can obey God so that all nations will hear the gospel and come to know Jesus Christ. If that is not your purpose, I don't know what your purpose in life is. 
If that's not your main aim, if that is not your life calling, I don't know what your main life calling and your purpose is. You can just think about it for a moment. What is it that I live for every day that I wake up in the morning? What is it that I look forward to? What is it that I spend my money on? What is it that I give my time to? What is it that I invest in? What are the things that I care about so much? And if it is not related to the purpose that Paul gives here, then it is the wrong thing. But that's the good news, is that this is what it is what God is calling us to. And the person who lived this out the most was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, he was God's word. He is God's word. He he lived in obedience through faith. And he shared the gospel not only with his fellow Jews, but he healed many Gentiles, Samaritans, other people who are not Jewish. So that what? So that he could commission his disciples to share the gospel with all nations. Who and who are we? We are simply just inheritance, inheritors of that commission. We, we look to our, our head shepherd, Jesus Christ, our master, who lived it out perfectly. And we realize, Jesus, you gave us your example. You had many partners, your disciples, and you, you allowed Paul to be another example for us with his partners. And you showed us that you had a common purpose, that common purpose so that the gospel could be proclaimed to all nations to bring about obedience to faith for all people all over the world. And that's my prayer, that every single one of us would experience that together. And that's why those two questions, I just want us to, two things you want us to focus on is who are your partners and what is your purpose? Who are your partners and what is your purpose? I'm going to give us just some next steps for this morning. Answer those two questions, really short. Who are your partners? What is your purpose? That's what, all, all I want you to do this week. Think about those two questions. Who are your partners? Are they fellow workers? Do they work hard for the gospel? And do they remind you how it comes out of being beloved? Are they diverse yet unified? Are they all like you? Or are they different people, different from you, yet striving for the same goal? And if you were to think about it a different way, if you made a movie about your life, who would be in your end credits? Who would be the people that you put down there and said, these are the people that helped me, supported me, that I labored together with, that are my beloved, that are the people that I strive together, that I live life together with? Answer that. And if you realize, like, I don't have many people, or the people that I have don't really fit those descriptions. I want to challenge you, take a step and just ask God, like, Lord, give me some partners. Provide for me some fellow workers. And maybe you need to repent because you're like, God, I'm not a fellow worker. I haven't, been, I haven't been working hard. I haven't been earnest. I haven't been internalizing the gospel for myself to share that with others. Who are your partners? And the second question is, what is your purpose? Ask yourself again. Reflect on yourself. Think through, like, why do I get up in the morning? What, what is it that I look forward to most that day? Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.